Hello and welcome to Art Witch, the podcast where creativity, magic, and healing align for personal and collective liberation. I'm your host, Zanetta, and welcome. Art Witch aims to provide resources for creative empowerment, helping folks make and share their art and also find their authentic expression. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of artists, witches, and healers, as well as experts in various art industries and related fields, all with the intention of helping folks share their art and their unique magic with the world. Welcome, welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with you all today to talk about a topic that I'm so passionate about and feel strongly is something that a lot of us artists are navigating, and that is copyright, protection magic, and archiving. I am so fortunate to be in conversation today with the wonderful Kate Thornhill. Welcome, Kate. It's so wonderful to be with you. No, thank you. I'm super stoked to be here. Um, Yeah, I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you about this topic. Kate, could you share a little bit about, you know, I know you're an artist, you specialize in being a librarian for like archiving, and you deal a lot with copyright. Could you share a little bit about what you do? And a little bit about your journey to getting into this work. So professionally at work, what I do is I'm what is considered a digital scholarship librarian. And a lot of the times folks are like, wait, so what does that even mean? And so I work at a university and um, I feel like it, what I do is I'm a hybrid between a librarian, an archivist, and a technologist. And I work within the digital realm where I educate folks pretty much on like DIY, like how to do digital like on your own. I specialize in digital media literacy, visual literacy, information literacy, um, all as a, a librarian who is in the forefront of supporting folks that want to make digital archives, that want to reuse creative content, that want to publish openly and publicly on the web or not. I also help people think through uh, the ethics of sharing and creating and thinking through uh, what choices you make as a creative and also as like an academic scholar and a researcher. And I primarily work with undergraduates and undergraduates, graduate students, and and faculty. Um, I've been doing this kind of work with digital media and digital technologies and building websites and building archives for almost 10 years now professionally. But it's always been the heart of my interest since high school, where I was learning about photography, like darkroom photography, getting introduced to the arts, um, I went to uh, I went to art school for a while. Uh, was studying art education, uh, and I worked in a what's called a visual resources center, where studio artists, art historians, art history majors. This is at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where it really started opening my eyes up to how students and faculty could be thinking more critically about their creative processes in the digital, like around how to steward your content that you're Mm. producing, right? And like, and stewarding it within, in in our society, right? Through capitalism and learning what the, what's in like quotes, the rules are, or like the right or wrong ways to do something. And, you know, I'm, um, I'm really passionate about like, how do we educate ourselves and others around, you know, the reuse and the creation of digital materials and how do we reach people with those materials and educate people about provenance, about how to archive your stuff, um, how to think about intellectual property rights, because it's all super entwined in this eco, in this really interesting ecosystem. I'm just really passionate about teaching people about what does this concept of open access mean? Um, when we're putting our stuff online, right? We're sharing mm-hmm. our stuff. We're granting uh, permission 
to people to engage with our mate- the materials that we produce, but also thinking about like, how are people going to reuse our stuff if we open it up to the world, right? You know, that is like such powerful, powerful reflection topics. Thinking about our work, thinking about how people will carry on our work or use our work or engage with it in the future. There's so much energy of like future ancestor, future like legacy building and just like reimagining the world of consent and how we believe work is supposed to be shared or not shared. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of prefacing that we have to do with this conversation. Cause I know a lot of people who are listening at this moment are probably thinking, what, what, what are all these things? Like they might've just heard some of these words for the first time. And so I think it'd be kind of cool to maybe give some groundwork here. Like what is copyright? Why, why, what is copyright and why is it relevant to this art, which community? Because I think that there's a lot of folks who make stuff, but have never even remotely interfaced with copyright. Yeah, totally. So I always like to open up with, uh, I am not a lawyer. So any advice that I, I, I give um, or just, you know, when I talk about copyright or intellectual property rights, I have to say that out loud because some people will be like, well, Kate said that. And it's a form of protection for myself, but also a pr- protection for others. And so I love that you're already <laughs> modeling, you're already modeling protection magic. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So before I like, I share like the definition of what is copyright, I just want to give a lot of props to um, the fellow librarians out there whose work I reference all the time um, when talking about what is copyright to folks that have just been introduced to it. So Specifically, like my lovely colleagues at the University of Oregon, where I work, the librarians there have done a lot of groundwork um, with getting our community um, more aware and knowledgeable of what is copyright and what is protected and what is not protected. You know, so what is copyright? So copyright law, it really it's a collection of exclusive rights for creators, authors, artists, inventors of original works. And we're talking about within the context of like U.S. copyright law. And this is like referring to the Constitution where Congress gives power. And like, you know, it's, it's really focusing on like the with the promotion of the progress of science and the useful arts um, and by securing for limited times to authors and inventors exclusive rights to what they are creating. And mm-hmm. so that really is like the general definition of like what is copyright. It's really about ownership, right? Yeah, my experiences with copyright have been as a sound artist, as a musician, as a songwriter, someone working in sound and kind of trying to make sure that the things that I create and that I share with the public will then be attributed to me. That's the first thing that it's it's like attributed to me and that my name or my, you know, publishing company or whatever is associated with that work. And that anytime that work is used or is shared or anything like that, there's a clear thread of who it belongs to, who created it. And I want to, I want to get into that later, the distinction between who created something and who it belongs to, because I do think that there's some important conversations as witches and as mystical folks to get into that. But essentially, it's also a way for me to make sure that I'm compensated for my work. So if, say, someone plays my song on the radio, then I am supposed to get a portion of royalties from that as both the maybe recording artist or as the person who published it, whatever. So my experience with copyright is more from being, you know, a member of ASCAP and then kind of using that. And so there's not a single thing that I put out on the internet at all. There's, there's nothing that I put out that isn't copyrighted that, that is mine. 
So that's where I stand. And I, I'm, I think that was a big part for me, at least kind of preventing me from wanting to put out work in the world. It was a very four of pentacles feeling. I didn't want to put out work because I was so worried that the things that I was creating were just going to be taken. And that's something I've had to kind of unpack a lot, but yeah, that's my brief experiences with copyright. No, you know, I, um, I feel you like on like a personal level with that about putting my work out there and, um, my work being reused by others without my consent. Right. Like, you know, I put an image on Instagram and, you know, if I had made my Instagram public, people could just take screenshots of my photographs. And then mm. I wouldn't even know that those screenshots were taken, right? They're being reused in other ways. And I, I have like that story that happened to my um, my brother's partner, where you know, she was she was going to art school and uh, first year freshman in art school and her best friend was in the photo department and she was in the art history department. And her friend was like, Hey, can I like take your picture for this assignment? And my brother's partner was like, yeah, a hundred percent. And when they did the photo shoot, the photographs were, you know, they were analog, like black and white photographs and her friend digitized them and put them on Flickr. And in, on Flickr, she was able to like select like in copyright, but it still was visible on the web. Anyone mm-hmm. to just like go and screenshot and go and use without her permission. And with Google image search, if, if you take a photograph, like a digital photograph file, like a, a JPEG, for, uh, for instance, and you, you can you do a reverse Google image search and you can see like who's reusing that image like any image and it's it's through these algorithms that google has created and this photo of my my sister-in-law all over the place used in ways that like a hundred percent were not cool um and in for my sister-in-law she was just like what the heck (laughs) i like and even her best friend the photographer was just but this was in copyright and they they couldn't stop it once it got on the web. It was just being reused by, you know, people that just really shouldn't, that was not the, the original intended use um, by the owner. Mm. Right. And it was stripped of all context and all meaning. I think that is such a crucial piece. And this relates back to like archives, right? As an archivist, um, a lot of the times when folks are like, I'm ready to donate. Here's all this stuff, um, this amazing stuff, this cultural heritage from my family or, you know, like it, like donations that come to archives. Sometimes the materials that we get, we have to recreate context. I've worked with folks where they're like, hey, like I have a bunch of family photographs that I want to digitize. Can I consult with you? And I have a whole conversation about metadata, uh, information about information, right? Who's the creator? Mm-hmm. Like, what's, when was it taken? Who's in this photograph? Who's the collaborator on it? And sometimes the folks that I work with don't remember those details. And so meaning is completely lost um, or fragments of meaning still exist. It's almost like detective work. Exactly. It's detective <laughs> and it's research work and it's, it's, it's hardcore memory work. And so, you know, that, that comes along big time with how we're reusing other people's creative works um, or how we're thinking about making ours available online. Hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like we're in this digital era of Instagram and YouTube where folks are reposting others' posts and circulating memes and just in general using others' artwork as a backdrop for a lot of their ideas and thoughts. It seems that the ethics and attribution practices vary so widely depending on like what circles we run in. Would you offer some just general practices, maybe just based off of your own personal, you know, alignment or things that you've noticed work better than others? <laughs> yeah. So um, in terms of someone who's reusing, I'll frame like my best, my, my best practices as a creator and then also my best practices as a reuser of others' property. So for myself, someone who reuses someone else's creative works, if I am 
going to be sharing through, let's say, my like Instagram stories. Um, I'm not going to go and take a screenshot of what I'm sharing on Instagram. I'm going to, there's actually a function that exists in Instagram that if that creator has given permission to share um, as a story, um, then that functionality exists. But in Instagram, you have to, the owner is the one that sets those permissions, right? They've already enabled a way digitally for you to reshare their stuff. And through stories, if you click on it, you can go back to the original post. And so I think what's important for reusing other people's creative works is, one, do they give you permission to use their creative works in any way that you feel is okay? So back to the like, can, are they giving you permission to use it in any way possible. There is this amazing movement of Creative Commons licenses where folks are able to license their artwork or just any kind of creative work, um, license it in a way where you still retain ownership of your creative works, but there's various licenses that you can grant where people don't have to ask your permission to reuse that you reuse your work but what they're required to do is give you attribution and so how this relates to like copyright because a lot of times folks are like well if i if i use creative commons does that mean i give away the ownership of my i'll use photography as an example if i am a photographer and i want my i want people to reuse my photography am i going to still be the owner of it And the answer is, yeah, like Creative Commons, if you apply it to one of your photographs or a collection of your photographs, people are required to give you attribution. And so within copyright, when the definition that I shared earlier about all the exclusive rights are with the creator, when we produce something, we can also license the work that we create. Like, Kate, yes. You can use this photograph. I am giving you a license to post this on your website. But guess what? That is the only way I'm allowing you to use that photograph for your website. I'm not letting you, I I did not say you could make money off of it. I did not say you could put it on a billboard. That is an agreement between like me and you. But with Creative Commons, you still retain your ownership, but there's all these various licenses that let you identify like, hey, I uh, don't want anyone to make money off of this, but anyone can use it any way they want, can share it, they can remix it, they just can't commodify it. And so there's various levels. This is really, really key. I've had a lot of experiences with this in sound, and my particular experiences have been around field recordings, right? And... I Some of the field recordings that I use in my projects, I have been fortunate enough to have permission and gr- be granted licensing to be able to use others' field recordings in some of my works. And there's a very specific kind of protocol that will go with the license in order to use that. And oftentimes it's like you can only use it in this project even though it's in perpetuity you know ongoing it can only be within this context in this use and you know that's it so being pretty aware of of when that happens and and how it happens and what are the rules around the license and stuff like that i think is really really important to pay attention to you know i the title in the title of this episode, we're talking about boundary magic. This idea that it's a spell when you honor someone else's boundaries and it's a spell that actually works for you. It's not just something you're obligated to do, but it starts to repattern how we view our own artwork and how we, we inform others to engage with our artwork. You know, the way that we treat others' artwork is the way that we will then receive the message of how we can ask others to treat our work. And so there's like this this magic that kind of ripples outward from honoring someone else's boundaries that I've noticed because it it does change the way that you go and you put out your own stuff and you say, hey, you know, could you please make sure that you 
X, Y, and Z. And you feel a little less squeamish about that. I've, at least I've noticed that for myself. I feel less squeamish when I've been honoring a bunch of other people's boundaries around their work. And then when I ask people to honor my boundaries, it's not mean, it's not harmful. It's, it's purely from a place of like, hey, this is what the work needs. This is how we make this work sustainable and ongoing. So I, I love that idea of like getting into licensing and talking about kind of the nuance there. Oh, I have so many sparks going off on my head right now, like, like listening to you, like speak about your experience and the words that keep show, like that keep coming up for me as I'm, as I was listening to you was consent and permission, right? Like consent and permission is really important. Like a lot of folks don't realize that like, well, actually you're like legally within like, like within the U.S. context, you're not actually allowed to take someone else's work and just post it anywhere on the internet or like in a conference presentation or like whatever way, unless the owner has let you do that. When I think about like the culture of sharing and can I take this and use it? And I'll use Google image as the example again, like Growing up, before I really started getting hardcore into thinking about reuse culture and remix culture, was, is it okay for us to go on the internet, on Google, and just search for a word and just take that picture, take that image? Mm. And like, by taking it, have you done research about the context of that image and why that image was originally created? I mean, what happens is when we're reusing and remixing so much, sometimes meaning can be lost. And original meaning could have so much. I mean, it, and I didn't say could, I mean, it, it does. It does have so much power to the original object and the original intention of the object. This is so key because so many of the artists that are probably listening to this episode are making artworks that are intended for either healing use, mystical use, all sorts of stuff. And the purpose, the channeling of those works from our guides, from our ancestors, whatever you believe, or from source, there is this like co-collaborative element that comes with, it's not really mine, it's of the universe and it's being worked through me. This was something that came up in the second episode with Eliza Swan, where we talked about how like both of us kind of feel on some level that the artwork that we're creating is not necessarily originating from ourselves, but is being moved through us. And we're kind of connecting to that, you know, she put it as the lightning energy of the universe, which I love, but you're just catching these things and you're you're open to them and if it feels right you you work it you bring it out into the world and while i love that and i think it's really powerful we still have this profound connection to the lessons of the material world like these works are going to reach people because they move through the material physical realm they're going to reach people because they're being purchased on Bandcamp or being shared on a podcast or being seen on the internet or these structures, these infrastructures. And in that, there is this stickiness. How do I make boundaries around my work when I don't even envision my work being my own solely, but part of a collective energy that we all have access to? And the way that I like to think of it sometimes is, do you still need to eat in order to be able to put that work out? Did you still need to develop skills or have access to equipment in order to realize that message from spirit? Did you still need to pay for the hosting site in order to be able to have that work up and available to folks? Because if so, then there is a divine call for you to support yourself and to make sure that whatever it is that you're creating is able to continue living on. And that actually brings me to that question of archiving, because for me, I have this ongoing kind of large project called Sacred Seasons, and 
that is completely channeled project. And in that project, I've had very clear instructions about not allowing that work to exist outside of that one day. So it's only meant to be heard on one day and it will only be heard once. And so it's like, I had to put some really intense boundaries and I had to kind of listen to those boundaries. And I've put up my own version of how to protect that work after it's been heard, after it's been experienced. But I'd like to hear about what do you recommend or what ideas do you have about folks who are, you know, maybe they don't have an access to a bunch of wonderful librarians or a bunch of wonderful archivists, but where could folks get started really put into place the actions or instructions to be able to archive their work and make sure that it lives in sacred integrity? That is a very, a very deep question. Um, And it's also, it's like, I'm like, that's a complicated question. It's a really complicated question. So that's a question of permanency and being, and to me, it's permanency and being remembered because archives are memory work. It's history work. It is I guess like advice that I have for folks that are wanting to archive, archive their works. I mean, there are a lot of resources online. Um, and what I plan to do actually after this, I'm going to be putting together a resource for listeners to, to use. Um, and I am going to license it so that way anyone can reuse it um, in any way that they want. And so if you don't have access to an institution, that is an archive where you could donate your stuff. Um, and I, let me give like some background first on like institutional context of why can't I just go and donate my stuff to like the archives, like the historical society? Why won't people take my stuff? So I'll, I'll, I will frame that first. These are my personal views. Our culture and like archival institutions, in my opinion, are, you know, they're not supported. We have such limited funding preserving cultural heritage and uh, to me I'm just like it is in our society it, it needs to be prioritized more and it breaks my heart when I, I'm working with folks I know that if I refer you to an archives the people I refer you to if, it, if you're like no I want this to be in a university I want it to be in that kind of institution I'm if I know their context and I know the curators and I know what hardships are going through with not having budgets, not having more space, like having to make those curatorial decisions of what gets kept and what doesn't. It breaks my heart that I'm just like, we're going to have to find another solution for you. But I think that other solution is this post-custodial idea of, I work with folks that don't want their materials to go to an archive, like an institutional archive. They're like, nope, we want to we wanna keep it in our community um, where we're cool. We're, we want to maintain it ourselves. And, you know, there, there's resources online. And there's, when I say like there's resources online, what I mean is the how to process the archives, like how to think through like selecting the materials you want to archive. How do you prepare your materials? I work with a lot of folks with thinking about digital materials more so than physical or physical materials that get digitized or photographed. and. I always talk about, we frame it as data management, but really it's information management or creative process management. Thinking about the information about the artwork that we're producing. Thinking about, hey, um, I 100% want this to be legally copywritten and like maybe this is a painting that I made and I want to make sure via the U.S. law that I have filed copyright for it. And so through the U.S. government, you can um, submit for copyright. I mean, automatically you do own the copyright of your creative works when you produce something, like period, like you are the owner of it. But if ever you wanted to sue someone, if you were like, hey, someone is reusing like images of my painting that I shared online and this is my livelihood, other people can't be making money off of it or using it in a way that I don't think is cool. You can actually apply online to copyright your work. Um, It does cost money, but that's one way to protect yourself by it's somewhere between 25 and 50 bucks per work. It's a, it can, it can, that can be really expensive for people too, right? 
Yeah, it can. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of artists, emerging artists who have really, you know, it's that four of pentacles again. They've really talked about like, I'm scared, like someone's going to steal my poem or steal my painting. And, you know, I actually have some really personal experiences with very large entities going and my partner had a, a work, the really beautiful album, and they had an or a company basically take their work and then re-record over it without their permission. And the organization was so large that there was nothing, you know, we had consulted with someone who was kind of a copyright lawyer specialist and he informed us, he was like, you know, there's really nothing you can do in terms of like legality wise, because it would cost so much money to go and actually take them to court that there's no possible way that we could deal with that. And I know that's really scary for a lot of folks probably to hear, but what ended up happening was we, re we negotiated you know, a form of like payment for taking that. But it was tough because they were using that work in a way that was completely unsanctioned, no consent whatsoever, totally taken out of context and using it all the time, constantly. It was a sonic ID essentially for their company. And so they were using it constantly. And we didn't even know, we had to find out through a friend, hey, I heard this somewhere this is your song wow. <laughs> it was so intense and so it was really messed up and and actually was about a year of really weird tenuousness and um that was a seemingly very progressive very seemingly liberal organization and it can just happen I guess my point is, is it can really happen anywhere at any time. And you can't really assume that just because an organization has your political leanings or, you know, that they seem like they're doing good work or stuff like that, kind of erecting those boundaries. Even when you do, my, my partner is a BMI artist. Even when you do, sometimes there are still situations that will arise that cause you to have to kind of deal with that. Yeah, you've got me thinking about, so within intellectual property law, there's something called fair use. And not knowing the details about your case, first, I want to say, I'm so sorry that you even had to deal with that. That's not cool at all. Um, and then this goes back to like our earlier about like permission and consent and how it's really important that we, if we're going to use something, we need to, we need to ask. So I'm thinking about fair use. So within copyright law, creators are, are given, you know, exclusive rights to their works. And those rights include like reproduction or the reselling of the work. However, there's a doctrine um, called fair use. And it is in like federal law. It's a defense that allows and in quotes an infringer to be able to like use in limit in, in quotes limited ways an original creator's works without asking their permission. And everything is contextualized, right? There's pros and cons. Everything is so like, in the moment, what is this use? Like, how am I using this thing? And is it violating someone's copyright? And so there's four factors of fair use. And like, again, this is all judgment work. This is all evaluation work. A lot of the times folks are really uncomfortable not being told the yes or the no when it comes to can I use this or not. And so these factors of fair use, one includes the effect on the market, right? So that's the money piece. Using a copy of work that was legally purchased, making only a few copies of it or not being able to find a copy uh, for purchase or licensing that favors fair use. It's really about the copy. Something to know about like copyright law period is it was written before digital. So we got to like think about it in that context, right? Like it was made before digital. So there's four factors of fair use. And the, the one I just talked about was that effect on the market. And so, well, dang, I'm like them taking your partner's music. They're 100% do not have fair use on their side because of they were making money off of it. A second factor of fair use is purpose of work. What is the reason for reusing 
someone's work? Is it nonprofit use, such as like for teaching, for research or scholarship? I mean, that would me, to me, would read, yeah, like that totally could be a fair use. But the thing with how you're using it, it needs to be transformative. And this is where like reusing other people's work within like art contexts, transformative use, like collaging, for example. Um, I have an artist friend who makes beautiful collages and she will go to thrift stores and find um, National Geographic magazines and she will use that as her material. She's transforming that original work. She's making a new context with them, right? But at the same time, you still need to be thinking about weighing the factors of fair use. So purpose of work. The next is the nature of the work. That's the third factor of the four factors of fair use. Um, Nature of the work is like, what is it published work? Is it highly creative works that are unpublished? Was it factors themselves that are not copyrightable? Do they express something very like experiential for that work? You know, it really just depends on like the creative presentation and the intention of that work. So not the purpose, but like that intention of its being. Um, And then the fourth is the amount used and like how much of something you're using. And so like both in quantity and also in quality, is am I using like a little bit of it or just enough? Or am I really like using the heart of the work? Mm. I feel like I can hear in your head, um, Zanetta, like, well, music, using other <laughs> like samples, right? Using samples. And there's this myth that comes along with music specifically, or just sound recordings, I should say, and videos. The thing I hear most from students and faculty that I work with is, well, I heard that like you can use 30 seconds of a clip for like a podcast that I'm making. I'm like, um, actually, that's a myth. And it came out from like some like random conference and somehow and now it's out in the ether. And you really need to be <laughs> you really need to be weighing the factors of fair use. Like it's not a numbers game where it's like I'm only using 15 seconds of it. Like it no, it has to be weighing those four factors of effect on the market, the purpose of the work, the nature of the work, and the amount used. Mm, This is so, so, so powerful. Because I do think that folks will get attached to using a work, using another artist's work, or, or using something, and they'll get attached and kind of lose sight of those variables, I mean, some of those variables are, are, I think, kind of intuitive. Like, are you making money off of this? This is an important fact in anything. Are you then going and like maybe using it in a context or situation that is so completely misaligned from its original purpose that can really, to me, connotate like, ooh, okay, wait. Yeah, I think that the fair use factors are so, so helpful in just starting, just a starting point into like when, when to use something and when not to. So in a previous conversation, I had spoken with interdisciplinary artist Eliza Swan about right relationship, and we kind of touched upon ethics in art and how we navigate that topic. I'd love to hear about your thoughts on how ethics, copyright, and just fair use are intertwined and how copyright work can help support our values and our ethics. So my experience as an educator, um, I really feel that the way that copyright is traditionally taught really focuses on, you know, commercial commodification and a lot of the times folks that I work with are like, well, I can use this if I'm not making money off of it, right? And I'm like, mm. I'm like, you still need to do like the, you still need to evaluate like your use through the four factors of fair use. So like that, that purpose and character, that market effects, the quality and quantity, and also um, the nature of the work. And so that nature of the work, uh, when thinking about ethics and should I use this, I think is really, really core for folks to evaluate. Um, And when I say evaluate, I think that's really important for folks to like dive deeper into the research of that piece that you're working with. 
So when thinking about it in use of like your creative context, if you're able to do more research in like thinking about what type of objects you're working with, what do you have access to and how you were granted access to those materials that you want to use. So I want to give credit and props to this amazing researcher, this amazing teacher, uh, amazing scholar um, named Trevor Reed. And Trevor Reed gave a talk a few weeks ago about fair use and cultural appropriation. And Trevor Reed is a member of the Hopi tribe. That tribe is located in the Southwest of the United States. But Trevor Reed's argument around the nature of nature of the work and should you be reusing it, his argument is framed around in the recordings from his tribe specifically that were taken and recorded by a white woman, an ethnomusicologist um, named Laura Bolton in the mid 20th century. Her work is pretty famous. She went around the country doing sound recordings of tribes and those recordings are now part of the Smithsonian mm. and they're at Harvard. They are at, the originals are with Columbia University where uh, their, their sound archives, they have a, a curator that is working actually with Trevor Reed on a reappropriation project, thinking about reciprocity of the ownership of these recordings that, you know, in the context of the Hopi, those recordings, you know, are ceremonial recordings of their music and of their dance, their practice relates to their language and communication, their creative economy, their environmental sustainability. And, you know, these recordings are also accounts for like colonialism. So thinking about, well, if there are all of these materials that you want to use for your creative process, you got to do the work, really examine like, where did it come from? Why was it made? Who made it? Like, how were you given access right. to it? Did you drive by some folks singing and just decide to record this? What? Yeah, mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah, and I, um, you know, the, I mean, the, whenever I talk to like students and faculty um, about, you know, they'll come to me and be like, am I allowed to use this image? And I'm just like, you know, think about why you need to use it. Is this something that, you know, you should be using? Have you gone and done the work and you're going to make sure like the creator is represented, that their intention is represented, that you, did you go and ask permission? And yeah, yeah. I, I kind of get like really amped up of talking course, about it. And of course. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, that there's an element of of honestly, I think of the justice card when I think of this work because it's that idea of alignment. It's getting clear on what you, you know, what are your values? And if you really truly value the communities that you are connecting to, then you need to think about how the way that you engage with their work, the way that you engage with those offerings of their expression, their original artwork or their sacred sounds or whatever it is, how you're showing respect and honor through your actions and your intentions. I mean, I feel like this is, it gets into like witchcraft 101. It's always about intention. Always. If your intention is to create some deeply powerful work using recordings from the Shona tribe, or something in Zimbabwe, and you just kind of happened to pass through that area and you recorded those sounds, and then you leave, and then that community gets no support, no recognition, no nothing. Woo, it starts to get weird. And it starts to get really weird when you just kind of take and take and take. And that's really you know, maybe we're a little removed. Honestly, I think a lot of us are a little removed from what it feels like to be taken from on that level where it's become so normalized to take and to extract that you see it all the time. Like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm listening to this music on YouTube or something. And I'm like, you know what? 
those artists are not getting paid. Someone uploaded mm-hmm. that music onto YouTube illegally and they right. are putting it up and the artist has to go every time and remove that file complaint to remove that. And every time they're going to have to do it over and over and over again. And it really, I think we just don't, we don't have personal connections. We haven't remembered that there are personal connections. There are deep, deep personal connections to, to the other side of whatever that item is. It's not just an item. There's an energy and a thread of, of connections that go with that. So I liked what you said earlier about research. Um, and I think like research gets such a bad rap because so much, so many of us have like, you know, been in grade school or whatever, and you have to research for a paper and it, it just gets this kind of like tedious energy around it and, and kind of an ob. It's like a punishment or an obligation that we're kind of forced to have to do. But I think this is like, it reminds me a lot of working with magical correspondences in witchcraft. You go and you want to use an herb. You get to know that herb. You get to know, you know, where it grows, mm. where it originated from, what energies are associated with it, what energies you have associated with it personally. You know, you get to know the best practices of caring and working with that plant or something like that. And I think that is part of research, that kind of building a relationship, building a connection. And I'd love to hear like a little bit of your take on how to go about research, how to connect with research in this expansive way, in this way that's like an invitation rather than an obligation. Whenever I encounter any kind of information resource, let that be a sound recording, an image, a book, um, a, a letter, a document, I always think about it in the context of authority is always constructed and contextualized. Mm-hmm. And what I am doing when I am looking at a news article, for example, I'm like, who wrote it? Why was it written? What context is this being presented in? Whenever I'm in like my Twitter feed or on social media, I'm always very critical of how I'm getting that information fed to me through these algorithmic feeds that are being designed and have been designed to really be marketing tools that are treating me not just a consumer, but something to be consumed. And so questioning like, where is it coming from and how is it being fed to me? And do I let it feed me? Do I let it give me energy? And the other piece is just recognizing too that information creation, it's all a process. And so when we think about information creation as a process, it's like you're, what kind of message are you conveying? What are you sharing? How are you delivering it? How are you revising it? Who is it for? And research is a process. If research is not an output. And I feel that process over product can be so much more enriching. I know it is for me. It can be so much more enriching to my soul, to my inner being, because I am breaking down assumptions. I am questioning. For me, right now, my creative process, I've been going out and doing field recordings here in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm based, which is located on um, the stolen land of the Kalapuya people. Mm -hmm. And so as part of my process, my process has shaped into learning about the history of where I live and it's taking work. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a cisgendered white woman. And so it's me having to face where my histories intersect and thinking about settler colonialism and that information is a process. And how do I continue to research and take in that knowledge and just recognize that there can be implications and maybe I should, depending on what I'm making, maybe I should stop, Mm. you know, maybe you should just stop and rethink and do something else or keep researching and, you know, keep, keep pushing through it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think 
the struggle to create in our society is so real and is so raw often that any idea of limiting or kind of of you know placing some kind of you know okay this is this is what i have to do or not do any kind of like energy of that can be overwhelming i think for a lot of folks but it's funny you know that process of recording and getting to know the land getting to know ancestral stewards of that region getting to know the ecosystems and our place within it is is a sacred one it's it's not one that is is meant to um limit but is meant to be opening it opens you on a really deep level to things that you may or may not have been aware of before and it gives you an opportunity to know where you stand and to feel grounded in such a different way that you move with such confidence and depth of intention that it's almost like the the effort that it once took to do the work actually lightens considerably because you feel like you know your bearings within this experience. It's not like a limiter, but it's more like helping to give, give that context. The research is that context. It's you're discovering the context of where you lie within the work that you care about doing. I totally agree. And, you know, I think a lot about these misconceptions because there's just a lot of pitfalls that we can kind of fall into with working with others' art or recording, you know, another community. For those of you listening who are interested in field recording or who connected to me through field recording, I want to say that a general practice for a lot of field recorders, I'm no lawyer, but this is what I have heard of a lot of field recorders doing, is that in general, if you're recording someone else's music, you probably might want to not include that recording. This is a very common practice among field recordists because of license, because of use, and because of copyright. It's so easy to pick up sounds of, say, someone playing music from their car driving by or to accidentally pick up someone singing. But unless you have permission, in general, I've noticed that most field recordists actually delete those recordings altogether because of just being able to protect themselves and to protect the others. So... That's just one thing that I felt like I should put out there before we like go any further on the sound tip of things. But I think that there are a lot of common misconceptions about copyright and about um, fair use. Could you share just maybe some of the common misconceptions? I know earlier you had mentioned about the 30 second rule, but are there any others, <laughs> you know, floating around that you just hear so often where you're like, wait, you might want to rethink that. <laughs> yeah. So the one I encounter most is with educators. We have a number of, of faculty members in higher ed that are asking the library for hey, like I need this video and I need it digitized and I need it streaming online because it's it's important to my class and my class usually happens in person and mm -hmm. please give me access to it um, so I can show it in class. And there's been a decision, like we're not allowed to do wow. that. And people think because it's for educational use. No, I'm like, you got to look at the four factors of fair use. Now, that's one decision that has been made uh, I always like to say that I'm not a lawyer, but I think there is space for different interpretation of mm -hmm. that. The TEACH Act um, is designed for, uh, it, for materials to be used for educational use by educators. But a lot of the times there's this myth of, well, I can just use it however I want because it's for educational purposes. And that's not really true at all. You have to do a fair use analysis for it. Like, sure, you might not be making money off of it, but you still you still need to do an evaluation. 
What would you recommend in terms of like starting that kind of evaluation process? Do folks have to go and connect with a lawyer or some kind of, is there a website or something that you recommend? So there's a super awesome tool that was developed by um, the Association for College and Research Library. It's called the Fair Use Evaluator. And it's such a rad tool where it's a, it's a website where you can go and like take, be taken on this journey to like fill out a form and like it helps you work through all four factors of fair use. So it's like doing your due diligence and it's public, it's free, you don't have to pay for it. And like it doesn't give you a decision because that decision is the individual's choice. That is their decision. But I think it's a great tool because it helps you do that due diligence. So if ever you get like a takedown notice, you have some type of record of your thought process. So that's one tool that's really great. There's also a number of best practice documentations that have been developed. Stanford University has a super awesome copyright website um, and guide where their sharing of knowledge that actually comes from lawyers. I'm going to make sure that this information is linked out so you, you all have access to it. Thank you so much. I know a lot of folks are going to be like, oh, sign me up. <laughs> where's the free, where's the free worksheet? <laughs> yeah, I know for real. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to creative commons license it too. So folks will be able to, you don't have to ask my permission to reuse it. If you bring it to folks that you think it would be useful for. The only thing I ask is that you give me attribution that Kate put this together. Attribute Kate. (laughs) (laughs) The other tip I like to give folks that are like getting into copyright and fair use. Here's like a tip to search in Google. Type in copyright space lib guides. L-I-B-G-U-I-D-E-S. And then once you've typed in copyright libguides, hit enter. There are hundreds of librarians across the United States that make guides that are specifically about copyright, fair use, licensing as educational resources where you could go and learn about these pretty complex topics. And there's even like subject area guides Mm. where like ones that are like specific about sound recordings or music or art or copyright related to like ethnography. And so you can find some really focused specialized content areas within the new, like having to navigate the nuances and decision-making and and thinking around copyright and licensing and fair use. So basically what you're saying is that you just gave us a magic spell that opens a portal, that opens a grimoire (laughs) of basically fair use copyright boundary magic information. (laughs) Yeah. And this stuff is all public on the internet. Like you have to pay for this. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) I mean, obviously like this podcast has a lot of people from so many different modalities using so many different mediums of art. And I think that to go and try to tackle this topic as if here are your four rules and that's it is really, really, it's kind of playing the fool. You know, you have to, you have to recognize that, that there's a lot there. It's all kind of developed over the history of our country, over the history of technology. And it's interwoven with a lot of policies and just all sorts of stuff. And so to kind of try to like parse this out in one fell swoop is a little naive, but what I think you're offering is so powerful because it's like, hey, you get to have agency around your work. You get to have like a sense of empowerment to determine how you want your work to move through the world and, you know, how you want to engage with others' art and set some precedence for yourself over the coming, you know, however long you want to research this and get into it. And I think it's evolving too. This is a big thing that I feel like we should just add to the last part of this conversation. Determining your relationship with copyright and how your work is being used and then archived or or whatever, your journey you go on with this. It's like you said, Kate, it's a process. It's a journey. 
it's going to evolve over time and depending on what you're creating and where you're sharing it and how much more, you know, if you make an album for a record label versus self-producing and self-releasing an album, they're going to have some different elements and some different vibes that come with those things. It's not going to be the same. So going on that journey is like, it can be really powerful and, and confidence building and really rewarding. It's hard to get out of this like either or mindset mm-hmm. about it too. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like either you did it right or you did it wrong. Like you can, you can't. And it's like, no, it's it's more nuanced than so that. much more nuanced. And so, so much more nuanced. And like so often the folks that I that I have conversations with that are new to copyright, immediately it's this or is it that? And it's like, no, it's like you you need to spend time and really investigate and evaluate and research to make a judgment call. I always ask someone who comes on the show, I always ask folks who come on the show, what advice they would give to emerging artists, either to yourself or to others who are coming out, what advice would you give for emerging artists? Do your research. When I say do your research, I mean, don't just rely on Google. Question where you're getting your information from. Um, The other thing, too, is talk to a librarian. Can you just be all of our friends? Like, can you you just be friends to all of us on the show? (laughs) And so when I say, like, go talk to a librarian, like, go to them and ask research questions. Tell them about the work that you're producing and if they're if they could help you find that information. Because the other thing too is like not everything is on the internet. I'm sure the net of like we both did the same Google search at the same time, like your filter bubble would be very different than mine. Mm. Um and so just being aware of like where you're getting your sources of inspiration from when they're being fed to you through Google or through these other, all these different corporations and just recognize that there's more than just the first results page. Oh, that is so, so delicious and wonderful. Holy smokes. You just blew my (laughs) mind. I love how that was the last question. And now I'm just like, Demolished, just demolished by that because the filter bubble. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like you think you're just going and you're typing in, like, you know, uh, what is it? it? Backgrounds for whatever, checking out this. Oh, yeah. You know, this location or this region. And then you recognize, like, wait a second. The whole scope of my field of awareness is being corralled by major corporations every aspect of what you get to see or not get to see is being determined and you have to you as as an individual have to go and unravel that for yourself before we end for folks that are really interested in learning more about those filter bubbles and how that works there's this amazing book called algorithms of oppression by Dr. Sophia Noble. Pretty much they're an internet scholar and they're an intersectional feminist and a black feminist. And they are, their whole book is about these search engines and databases that we engage in. And she just, she reveals but like about how these systems work um, and how they're designed. And it's, it's a pretty amazing resource. And it, it was definitely very opening Just like a lot of folks aren't aware that you live in a filter bubble or how that filter bubble works. And I think that's also going back to like when you're doing research, always begin with like questioning that authority and knowing that information is constructed and it needs to be questioned and deconstructed to open other doors that will lead you to other rooms um, that will then, I think, eventually at some point be able to just open up your whole entire house in your realm to this like beautiful open garden and be able to like really live in this new and interchanging space of just knowledge and knowing and being and sharing and and love oh wow this is such deep like third eye work 
it's such deep third eye work because there's just you're dissolving predetermined thought forms and kind of avenues of access and you're releasing yourself from that and getting into such into a fluid space that is just more authentic and where you can really like truly get inspired so that's amazing oh Kate it's been so wonderful to talk to you about these subjects which I feel like are so relevant and yet often so heavy and it just feels uplifting and I I don't know it brings me a lot of hope for my own process my own creative process the next phase of my work it involves a lot of like storytelling and listening to people's stories and gathering stories and I'm so excited to actually embark on that and start to to actually have some real tangible tools to use and to hear from someone who just has such a passion and joy for this work. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode of Art Witch, please consider subscribing or writing a review. Each and every little bit helps spread the word to more and more people. 